From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers saving music journalism from death by clickbait. What's up, everybody? This is Mickey Hellerback. Um, welcome again to In Search of Sauce. We have three uh, really cool pieces lined up for you today. First, we're going to start with a, a piece from Rolling Stone profiling Lil Baby. Second, we'll be getting into um, an episode of, of The Breakdown from Hip Hop DX. This is an episode uh, hosted by MERS on Underground Rap. And then finally, uh, to close it all out, uh, we'll get to the NPR Tiny Desk concert. Guys, you want to introduce yourselves and then I will go last. Yep, so Ryan Gore here, writer at Central Source. Um, I'm working on right now my interview with Chris Keyes. It's going to be a bit of a different structure to a regular article interview kind of thing. So I'm excited to jump uh, jump into that. Yeah, uh, Brandon Hill, writer, editor with Central Source. You should subscribe to my writing newsletter. You can find it in my bio on Twitter at Hoopla Hill. And I am currently working on an interview package with Chris Patrick, who just found out today that his song Swish got included in NBA 2K21. So that's pretty exciting stuff coming up. Yeah, I think that's cool. We're all kind of like in the process of getting interviews done. Um, Again, I'm Mickey Hellerback. Uh, Most recently, actually, uh, had an interview published with Notion Magazine um, from uh, Zion Foster of uh, the UK. Uh, up-and-coming R&B singer, if you haven't heard of him. His new project, Welcome to the Lion's Den, just came out. Um, and then I've uh, just released a few new uh, Why We Liked It intro pieces on Central Sauce. Most recently today, I just dropped a piece with Davey Boy. Um, and check check those out. I just did a week of submissions, so more coming from that too. And then I'm also working on uh, an interview that I'm supposed to have tomorrow with Naya Grace, um, who was someone who submitted uh, to our Submit Hub page um, with a song that I accepted and wrote about, and she just dropped a really incredible album called Honey Colored, which um, features Corinne Bailey Ray, who also um, was very collaborative with her on the entire project, and she's definitely an up-and-comer to watch out for. Um, Without any further ado, Brandon, you want to go in about your little baby piece? Absolutely. So the piece I'm bringing today is titled The Remarkable Rise of Lil Baby, and it is the Rolling Stone cover story by Charles Holmes. Um, so, you know, we've talked about it before. I've definitely mentioned, like, how much I lo- just love Rolling Stone and the work that they do. So, I mean, it's pretty natural that if they have a cover story on a rapper or someone in hip-hop, um, we can pretty much rest assured that I'm going to bring it to the podcast. And this piece was absolutely no exception. So... What So in this interview, Charles Holmes is – he does like the full-length style of interview where you basically go to the artist's house and you, know, you are practically with them 24 hours a day. I mean not literally 24 hours a day, but you're with them throughout their entire day over like a two-day period. It's a very, very like close, a very personal kind of relationship that the interviewer gets to have with the artist as they you know, just go about their life as opposed to – a sit down interview with a structured set of questions. Um, and I think what makes this interview, which is written in a profile format, not a transcript format, which I like the profile format better. And it, 
is what makes this piece shine in this case, because in a very Rolling Stone way, Charles Holmes has such a strong personal voice as a writer and as an interviewer. Rather than just, you know, present a day in the life of Lil Baby, he works himself into the profile in a way that builds an even better picture of Lil Baby than you could if you were just taking an outside looking in kind of perspective on his life. Um, like, for example, uh, right at the start of the piece, he starts it out with he's playing dice with Lil Baby and he loses like several hundred dollars to Lil Baby in a gambling situation. And then, you know, throughout the rest of the piece, there's a lot of not necessarily tension, but there it, it Lil Baby seems like it would be have been incredibly difficult to get this interview done, let alone to write it in the way that Chris Holmes has written it. Um, and I, I think it's, it's especially just that perspective that Rolling Stone does so well of inserting theirself into a story to tell a more accurate representation. You, you see it like, you know, you can see the same kind of perspective um, now that it's gotten popular, written in a lot of other magazines and a lot of other publications. But the, the style of journalism called gonzo journalism really originated with Rolling Stone and Hunter Thompson, and I think that they still do it better than anywhere else I've seen it. Yeah, and it's something that you said about um, <clears throat> about inserting yourself into the piece. And it, the article has this natural flow of uh, Charles observing Little Baby and then interacting with him. And you kind of get to see the relationship between Little Baby and a stranger and Little Baby with the people around him as he interviews not just Little Baby, but his team, his managers, people like that. And I think that was super interesting because there's no real difference and you really get a feel for who little baby is and yeah uh, to be able to have this kind of access for days on end and uh still having the ability to whittle it down to the bits that you think matter even right. though the article is pretty long it doesn't feel like uh the it doesn't feel like you're missing anything it feels like you've been spending these days with Lil Baby too, and you've been learning as much as Charles has about Lil Baby. So, and I feel like just the idea of being able to spend this much time with any artist is going to bring out something fascinating. Like, every artist has something fascinating to say, and Charles does a great job of drawing that out of Lil Baby, even though I'm sure Lil Baby's the kind of person who just has that kind of personality anyway. So great job for, great job to Charles for drawing him out, but also to, um, I guess, QC and the, the management of Lil Baby for letting him just speak. Because there was a point where um, the manager stepped in and was like, oh, you don't want to say that. Lil Baby says, no, I don't care, I'm going to say it. So I thought like he's such a great subject and he really got to see the interview, interview, interviewer subject relationship build to the point where he gets a nickname and everything. It's great. Yeah, they literally call him Velma because he looked like Velma <laughs> from Scooby-Doo. And, like, that's... But, see, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about, too, that, like, that could make it, like, a really difficult interview that you can tell, like, this interviewer is, like, well-prepared. You know, he's been doing this for a long time. Like, if I if I had this kind of access or had an interview, like, right now, you know, with where I'm at in my career and Lil Baby and his friends started calling me Velma, like, I, like I'd be so shook. Like, it'd be so hard to... to <laughs> like finish the interview in a really 
concise way like what he's done and put that picture together. Yeah. I think it's cool that he doesn't um, shy away from the kind of semi-uncomfortable feeling of being around him. I think throughout the interview, there's multiple moments where he's kind of getting ragged on. And I think, I think there can be like maybe an impulse from a journalist to like shy away from that when they're actually writing about um, an experience with an artist, because on some level we all would have some kind of internal thing, which would make us want to look like it was like a cool time. And we really vibed with this big artist, but he, there were definitely clear moments of kind of awkward back and forth, particularly um, at the beginning when Lil Baby is like kind of teaching him how to play the dice game and Lil Baby clearly kind of gets one over on him and like doesn't tell him a rule and then all of a sudden tells him that he loses and then takes his money, <laughs> which is like kind of like an absurd thing to really happen. And it's funny because it like it, him really diving into that moment, which is maybe like shining a light on Lil Baby that isn't that great, but also not that huge of a deal, but also kind of his like embarrassment of being inside of that. Um, it, it made me tense up and I, it, it's kind of goes back to Brandon has a really cool piece about diving into the tension and then the release from music. And I think by kind of diving into the, the reality of the kind of pieces of tension that were going on within him being around him, um, it provides this kind of release into the more kind of, uh, when he takes a step back and starts to go into his analysis. I think that's really cool. Brandon, I wanted to ask you more about that, um, gonzo journalism that you were talking about and how that applies here yeah so gonzo journalism um uh, originated basically with hunter thompson and rolling stone and it's the style of journalism i mean you can read this and like hunter thompson has some great great stuff out there but um it's the style of journalism where rather than like going and just like taking notes and gathering a list of facts and then writing and presenting in the cleanest possible way that you can present something it's writing and presenting it as you experienced it. Um, and I actually wrote a paper in my uh, senior year of J school on how gonzo style of journalism, I used Hunter, uh, Hunter Thompson's presentation of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, where he wrote about a um, dirt racing competition in the Las Vegas desert. And it's how gonzo, and I think, which is I think it really exemplified in this piece, is that the Gonzo style presented the story more accurately than if you had just gone and chopped up a really cut and dry factual piece of journalism. Um, in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, he's there to report on a, on a race in the desert. So sand gets kicked up all over the place. Hunter Thompson is drunk and high as hell. But, so he's not really like experiencing and writing down and recording because you can't see shit of the race anyway. So the most accurate way that he presented that race and he presented that time was exactly through how he experienced it. You know, chaos, confusion, misunderstanding, like the hectic nature of just being in that environment. And in the same way, I think um, Holmes with the Gonzo style presented a better case of Lil Baby. Like you mentioned, you know, he you could definitely write out some of the aspects like where he got hustled or um, – the aspect where he actually argues with Lil Baby about whether or not black people can be racist with white people. And like Ryan mentioned, you know, having that kind of full access and being there for such a long time and having so much material, you get to be very selective about what you include. He very easily could have written out these sort of like uncomfortable moments, but through this Gonzo style where he wanted to tell the story as he experienced his time with Lil Baby, I think paints a better picture of the artist. 
because, you know, he's really getting down to portray like, okay, what is it like to spend a day with this person? Not how can I make little baby and write this great, really articulate piece about who he is, where he came from and how he developed. He takes a more direct approach to saying like, this is more encompassing who he is as a person rather than who he is as a public figure. Right. I think that that's, that's definitely true. And I think that also applies to how it's described um, in kind of his, his come up. And he, I think he really kind of dives into um, how there, there, it's just really a step-by-step process. And a lot of it kind of has to do with being in the right place at the right time and a little bit of luck and having the right people around him to kind of push him in the right direction. Like it's not, I think that we can kind of, it can be easy with writing these kind of pieces to also be, do some version of like, oh, this guy really came from nothing and he just kind of came out of nowhere. And then like, he really like built himself up and made this thing, but it's this really kind of shaky process for him that gets described as he kind of is able to go in and talk to, to coach K and P and about like what it was really like to kind of get him to get out of the mindset of the streets and go into music full time. Um, I thought it was also interesting about being able to kind of have that full perspective. He really um, got into to why Lil Baby has cut through so much. I think that's like a huge thing that, that people talk about of like, what is it specifically about him that really just kind of propels him through the pack? Um, and it's just, it's an interesting kind of look behind the curtain that I think happens from that kind of gonzo style you're talking about, which is the, the kind of reminder that we all need that like a lot of people in rap are not really telling their reality. Cause it's coming from people who are in the business con- constantly and that they saw Lil baby as a guy who was around, who actually comes from a reality to express. And it was like, Oh, I, I see this kid with this potential. We need to kind of groom him because he actually, we think he just from his swagger that he'll kind of have some talent going into this and really be able to ex- express kind of the honesty behind the story. That's kind of been um, cookie cuttered into a story that a lot of rappers have used to express themselves. That isn't totally their reality. Um, yeah. I think I mean, the no- a, there was a quote that he got from him that I thought was great. Yeah. Um, yeah, go, go for it, Brandon. Well, just the note about how at just 17 years old, Lil Baby owned two $2,000 a month condominiums. Um, and then he was bragging about how, you know, rappers go out on tours and they make 30000 a show. They do multiple shows. So they come back with all this money and Lil Baby is there, you know, selling them weed, hustling them, gambling them and like bragging about how sometimes he could come away with a rapper's whole $50,000 from their tour. And like this is we're like at Lil Baby at age 16, 17, you know, and then so when he when he goes to prison and he decides to like turn all that around and become a rapper, the note about like how they like how he learned to rap from Young Thug and from Gunna, I thought was incredibly interesting because how often do you get a perspective of someone who like gets coached in a specific style and who learns to rap, you know, you have someone who's teaching them like, okay, you like, you know, this stuff about your life, like this, is how you happen, like, this is how you flow. Like, this is my rhythm, as opposed to like, most of the time, when a rapper is coming up, they come up from, you know, they're making their own music, they kind of get a feel for their own style and their own sound before they get big. But in this instance, you know, you have him learning directly from people who are already successful. 
I thought that that was just a really unique perspective too. Yeah, there's so many things that are so fascinating about this piece, honestly. Like, I think that's why it's so long, because Lil Baby comes out with so many things that are funny, so many things that are just so, have carry such depth. Like when he's talking about uh, life sentences in prison, it was like, it was like, I know those people would rather just die right now rather than sit there and wait to die. And he said he knew 20 people, personally knew 20 people that are serving life sentences. Like, that's crazy, too. Yeah. But those are things, like, you know, in those small details, those are things that you can't lose out on. Those are things that you, like, that he does a good job of pulling them out. And while that seems kind of like a throwaway fact, you know, but he weaves it into the story so well so that it's not just like an offshoot fact. Like, it's contextually important to who Lil Baby is as a person and how he got where he's at now. Yeah, specifically where where he got where he, how he got where he's at and why he really just does connect to people is because no matter if and he kind of he goes into this thing of like his perception of like needing to kind of have a back and forth with him about what he thinks is right and it, you kind of get into the reality which is that like little baby is not like thinking about something or trying to contextualize it or intellectualize it it's all coming from a really raw experience so whether you agree or disagree with him and he is coming from such a everything that he kind of talks about and expresses comes from real true life experience and hurt so and he's someone who doesn't have to like dig into his own thoughts it's all based in something that really happened to him so on that level because he doesn't have to kind of there's no nothing that he has to figure out how to say he just kind of says it i think that's probably a a refreshing thing for people to hear through the music yeah and because of that it's amazing how cohesive this article is like if you're a journalist you're charles right now like i have to document who this person is in words black and white words on the screen and that's incredibly difficult just because just because of how people are. And I feel like, especially with artists, you can easily accidentally uh, put an artist in a box by using certain phrasing and describing them a certain way or choosing certain quotes. But Charles does such an amazing job of uh, giving the reader like all these different shades to Little Baby. And it's such a such a valuable thing to have and such a valuable, valuable skill to have in a, I guess, a culture that likes to reduce artistry and reduce people to specific things. Especially, like, it's, like as, as I saw the piece, um, he's talking about how people wouldn't expect like a, soci- a socially conscious song from someone like Lil Baby. And that's the entire problem right there. And the exact thing that Charles really works to... Um, compensate for i guess in the article and he does it incredibly well so yeah i Um, I absolutely loved that bit about the protest songs you know when you mentioned how people didn't expect a socially conscious song from someone like Lil baby and then the writer goes into saying like you know at the protest it wasn't people chanting uh we gonna be all right or you know lyrics from j cole or kendrick he says that they're chanting lyrics from pop smoke and ludicrous you know they're saying move bitch get out the way and Christian Dior, Dior, up in the store when it rains, it pours. Like that, like at like the addition of that note 
to the context of, you know, not expecting a socially conscious song from Lil Baby shows that the journalist, like, more so than just reporting what he's seeing and experiencing, like, he has a full understanding of, like, what that is and where that context comes from. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like you mentioned, a lot of that is in the language that he uses as well. Um, The language and the phrasing is very intentional. Yeah, he understands his responsibility as someone who is is creating commentary around an artist. Um, Full, okay, so like Lil Baby, like going into this, like I've listened to Lil Baby and I like, especially his feature verses, um, you know, they pop, like obviously he's a huge successful rapper, but it gave me like an understanding of how all of a sudden like it just seemed like Lil Baby was huge and Lil Baby was everywhere and it was like okay I was seeing a bit here and there but all and then all of a sudden like the biggest album of the year um he makes the comparison that it outsold Drake and The Weeknd but like in the way that he paints this picture in the album and compares it to like how Baby grew up you know being a hustler and like hustling for money and how you know at the dice competition at the beginning uh, Holmes was never going to win that dice competition. Lil Baby was always going to win, and it's not a surprise. And I think that he paints that picture of Lil Baby's rap career as well, uh, just in the way that he has approached his career. It seems like Lil Baby was always going to win. It's like it's not a surprise that he's at the spot he's at now because of the way that he approached his career and just like the confidence and just the calculation. You know, they weren't they weren't relying on like, okay, we've – we have got to keep making songs until we get this big hit out there. Like, they went through things like a machine. They had a process. Um, I forget the name of the guy who helped Baby assemble a lot of his stuff, but it basically he said that for three years, they just took all the songs, like all the Lucys that he made, they threw some cover art on it, they got it together, they put it out there. They kept doing that. They just kept putting it out there. And then, like, at the small shows, um, you know, they were playing, like, just random hole-in-the-wall venues, and they didn't have, like a really put together, really worked over, expensive, high concept production value. They Sometimes they said that the dude was just in the booth telling the DJ what to play next. And it's, it's the language and the attitude that he talks about that kind of process that gives you the feeling that like Lil Baby almost like hustled his way into the top spot where he's at now. And that it, where, where it matches the confidence of him not being surprised he's there because, of course, that was the plan the whole time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one last thing I wanted to talk about was like, Brandon, I need your opinion on this because you're the Rolling Stone consul. <laughs> but how long have they done these audio articles? So this article at the start gives you the option to listen to it. I'm not sure if it's Charles reading it, but it's like a 30-minute uh, audio file of uh, him reading out the article, and that's amazing. But it's also amazing because I had this idea months ago, and I want to know if they stole it from my brain. <laughs> well, um, it's definitely, I mean, they've definitely worked on integrating, like, audio and stuff like that with pieces. I think um, just multimedia journalism in general has been on a rise. Uh, this is probably the first that I've noticed as a major, like, just the whole episode as a podcast um, especially for a cover story, but I might not have, you know, read the last couple cover stories and you could go back one, uh, cause you know, it might've been something I wasn't as into. You could go back one and they might have it on there. So I couldn't like pinpoint it down to the date, but I didn't notice that as well recently that I was like, Oh, this is cool. Like I hadn't seen this. Yeah. I, I, I talked about that exact thing to Carter, um, months and months ago. I promise you it was ages ago. 
So Rolling Stone, you have spies, I'm convinced. Just <laughs> start dropping in on the calls. Well, let's end there, Rolling Stone. You've been warned. <laughs> So, so my piece is from a beloved, um, by me anyway, YouTube series called The Breakdown. It's on Hip Hop DX and they've been going for a few years now with a few different hosts and the idea of the show is just to take a topic and rap and break it down. So <laughs> this episode was hosted by Murs, the underground rapper. And it's about the underground itself. It's called, uh, Did Underground Rap Bury Itself? So, um, these videos are usually incredible resources. And I knew I wanted to bring one of them. It was a matter of which one. And anyone who knows me knows I have massive love for underground hip-hop. For what it has been and what it is today. So I thought that this would be a really good piece to bring. <clears throat> So the piece kind of tries to tackle what the term underground is. People have different views of what it is now. People have different views of what it was. So this, what Merz does in this video is kind of uh, break down how the term and how underground rap developed from rap's inception in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. So, um, and in the end, it ends up kind of laying out the need for the underground and you have a better understanding of why it exists. So uh, near, the, near the end of the video, Merz uses this amazing metaphor. I hope he came up with it himself because it's such an incredible metaphor and unbrand for someone as lyrical as Merz. But he describes the underground as the roots of a plant. And as the uh, stem of the plant blooms, being the mainstream, the more it goes upwards, the more the, um, the roots bury themselves underground. And it, he kind of describes it as a symbiotic relationship between the two. And I love the idea because um, it shows how hip-hop is this expansive genre and how the mainstream and underground aren't enemies but really do feed off each other. And some of the information he brings in the piece talks about how um, things from the actual musical style to business models have floated between the underground and the mainstream, those two kind of feeding off each other. Because as you enter this age now where um, labels and are kind of financially... Artists on labels aren't getting what they used to, and label money has definitely dried up over the years. The uh, business model of selling the hell out of your merch and touring and touring and touring was something that underground artists were doing back in the 90s. So, um, yeah, I thought this video was excellent as a resource. Um, going from how rap, it's, in its very inception, was fully underground to the mainstream becoming sanitised and the underground reaction to that, making it even more uh, lyric-focused and making it even more explicit... And you go the whole way through this article seeing these two changes simultaneously. And I thought it was great. So what do you guys think about it? Um, I, first and foremost, I loved the, the section about um, 
the kind of transference of well when hip-hop kind of started to to transition into what was more of a mainstream thing it became more of a a style of music to dance to which is kind of interesting because there's like a little bit of roots in kind of a disco style and the early sampling of hip-hop and that the underground was birthed from the idea of like um, making music that specifically was more for nodding your head rather than dancing to um, I th- I just thought that that was kind of a cool observation to make of like what it was specifically kind of the underground was combating against. Um, I also really just love the idea of it being symbiotic. Um, cause I, I, I think that that can be, um, a, a thing that's just not useful to progression at a lot of times, which is to, to pit the mainstream of rap against the underground when yes. at the end of the day, I think it can they can really specifically help each other out um, as long as everyone is getting credit where credit is due. And that can be the difficult thing that he kind of talks about in the article is like people who kind of create a version of a style in the underground and getting kind of bitten by people in the mainstream and then popularized without them getting credit. Um, And I I kind of want to put this in there because it really made me think specifically about Drake's relationship with what could be considered the underground to kind of put it in a modern context, though not all of the artists he collaborates with are underground. I mean, one really specifically that we could all think of right off the bat, just coming off of the other article, is him doing Yes Indeed with Lil Baby, kind of pushed Lil Baby to a huge level of spotlight that he did not previously have, um, which is kind of interesting. I, I think that and Drake really kind of straddles that line, right, between is he taking an artist who's like either on the come up or could can be be considered in more of like an underground and bringing them to the direct huge Drake machine mainstream being that he is now. Um, but I think that the, the relationship is always a lot more symbiotic than it is kind of oppressive to me. I always like specifically with Hedy one, he just did a freestyle with, I feel like Hedy one was really making a name for himself in UK drill. But I think that just off of that, like he gets so much more revenue off the rip and that's kind of the big thing at the end of the day, along with getting the underground artist recognition, there is this kind of give and take of like the mainstream artists being able to literally give revenue to the people who are creating in the underground. Um, so I, I just, I love the idea of it, like kind of the growing roots and then things growing and then just kind of it as one, one plant almost or tree that's kind of like each part of it is, is helping the other. Um, I, I thought that that was a really cool breakdown. Hey, the breakdown. Okay, yeah. And yeah. I thought that was a <laughs> that was a brilliant that way was not to a, that was really not on purpose at all. <laughs> yeah, promise. and that plan therefore was a really brilliant way to answer the question of the video of did the underground did underground rap bury itself? And the the answer comes out with is yes, because it needed to in order for rap to survive. And that's what the main I guess um the main uh, goal Message. is yeah yeah for the plan is to survive that's what you need to do so you bury yourself deeper to get some more water and you grow larger to get some more sun and i thought that was a beautiful way to answer the question did underground rap bury itself but also extending the metaphor of the plant and the roots you know the roots don't grow all in the same direction they split off and they go in all these different ways same with the main with the same with the uh, plants and the what do you call them? Leaves. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, but so like if you look at the underground, you know, Rock Marciano doesn't make the same music as Open Mike Eagle. 
who doesn't make the same music as Biddy Woods, but it's all considered underground, but it's all working towards the same goal. And I thought that was just a really incredible, perfect metaphor that Merz came up with there. So shout out to him for that. I really liked the way like he like led off the video where he like kind of summarized the whole argument and like what he was going to talk about like really quickly and right off the bat. Um, I think it got me like hooked right away and it had me like already, you know, like based on his brief summary, it kind of had me asking my own questions that I was hoping he was going to answer. And one of those questions that I think he answered really well was sort of how an artist can be considered underground, but still be a very popular artist. Um, and one of the examples that had that specific, well, I guess there's two really specific examples, um, I think of when I think of like large artists that are considered underground and that's, uh, Freddie Gibbs and MF Doom. And a lot of like how he sort of explained that with is how like, you know, underground rap is still growing. Like you said, like the roots is still growing and branching out in all sorts of different directions. Um, and because of the internet, you know, it makes it so much easier for people to have access to that total huge pool of stuff. And then uh, I also wanted to go back to that bit that Mickey said about how underground rap really started deviating from the dance tunes. Um, because I think like what the most interesting, because this was a part in the video, like I had to stop it and rewind it. I was like, wait, that that's crazy cool. Like exp- explain that again. And it's when he talks about how, um, <clears throat> so there's... Uh, Run DMC, and I'm trying to think of, like, what other artists he's mentioning, but that... Well, he said, like, M- from Run DMC to MC Hammer was the... Yes, exactly. So, yeah. Run DMC, MC Hammer, um, and th- that generation is using those, you know, repeated drum, lo- drum loops that make it easy to dance to basically whatever kind of song is being played in hip-hop. You know, in general, like, you can dance to it, you can use almost similar dance moves, um, and then the underground rap... So to be like to go away from that and be the antithesis of it, he starts talking about um, you know like the crate diggers and going back and finding like older and older stuff to sample and how underground rap began to deviate from the mainstream with a focus on production and it became just as much about the rapper flexing lyrically as what it was on how much the like how good the beat that the producer can put together is and so then you know that's where the head nodding come it comes in because it made it like more difficult to dance to because every song has different loops, different rhythms. And so then it became the head nodding thing. And he throws in the note that that is how the term hip hop head, you know, when it first originated hip hop heads were people who were listening to music that they would nod along to as opposed to dance to. And then, you know, if you start bringing in music where you've got people, you know, nodding along rather than dancing, they start to pay more attention to the lyrics. They start to focus on more of the content of the song and it evolves, it evolves into a more like kind of the rap we know today. And at least the rap that like we, or at least I myself, like really like the rap that you can break down, you can analyze. Well, all that like breaking down and analyzing like first rap had to become that head nodding. And now you've got that a level of breakdown and analysis, even in mainstream rap. And that's just how the underground has helped the mainstream evolve, like all that content. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes me think about um kind of how there's a new version of that in, in modern day, how where it was like 
they had the the dance rap in the mainstream but that had mostly to do with the production and then the production kind of shifted along with the energy and i think it's kind of funny is like the mainstream of rap has moved into more of a melodic version of rap and what we're hearing from the underground is more of an anti-melodic it's just not really with that much attention paid to that specific aspect of it yeah and i thought his definition of what underground kind of meant was interesting because he mentioned ASAP Rocky and Tyler, the creator, being his modern-day examples of what underground meant. And I would never in a million years, when I was listing underground artists, think of ASAP Rocky and Tyler, the creator. But he goes on to say, very succinctly, by the way, he's such an incredible, like, he's so great at summarising his points. This is a 10-minute video, but there's so much that he covers. But um, he says that what makes them... In his eyes, underground is the fact that they had the opportunity to go so... Like, Tyler could have gone so pop, but stuck with what he wanted to do. And Aesop Rocky was named Rakim, and he's from New York, but he went with the kind of Texas style. And the idea of not being swept away in what's expected of you is kind of a great definition of what underground is. And if you go to what... Um, people like Milo are doing today what people like uh, say if Mike Eagle again are doing today it's kind of a not a concentrated reaction to the mainstream because you don't make music like that You can't, it's kind of um, knowing what your sound is and knowing where that has to exist like accepting that you're not going to get all the Grammys but you know being satisfied with the music that you're making and i thought that was really awesome i like how you said um the note about it not being a conscious reaction to the mainstream um, because he even makes that distinction in the video because that is backpack rap and underground (laughs) rap is not backpack rap and like with the distinction that he makes in the video i thought that that was a big key point because i think those two things kind of can sometimes be used interchangeably or Mm -hmm. um you know people don't use them the way like that the context actually applies. Uh, so I think that was a really good distinction he made in the video and in your explanation as well. Yeah, because people misunderstand what underground actually is. They'll have like one example of it and say, oh yeah, this is underground rap. But you can have so many variations of it. And it's really just an abstract idea at the end of the day. You know, it, music is music, subgenres are fading, you know. <laughs> Especially the internet when there's so much access. What is underground, really? Is it some guy who never releases his music? He's so underground that he deep, there's no way of listening to it. Like, you know, uh, the, the term is, is kind of becoming... It's kind of straddling the line between com- being completely useless and being a very needed definition to say... Like, I, said, I mentioned Open Like Eagle so many times, but he's always said, like, there needs to be a distinction of what... Kendrick Lamar does on these massive budgets and what I do out of my own pocket. But that he started out as using the term art rap, but that term kind of faded. And I guess the term underground kind of sticks. But I agree with him that there needs to be a distinction of the resources that artists have when making music. But yeah, that's a big conversation for a different day. Well, I think that that's like, but at the end of the day, that's like independent versus major label, isn't it? True, true, but there are some labels. There, who... 
Yeah, there are under, under I mean, there are underground rappers on labels. Like, I think part of what makes underground as a label so useful is the fact that it is so flexible, and then that there's not a clear, yeah. like, set line for like. <clears throat> it it makes me think of um, Chance the Rapper actually, and using the label of Christian rapper. So basically, Chance's entire career, he has basically been a Christian rapper, but he never wanted to use the label Christian rapper. Because if he puts his music out under the label Christian Rapper, he's only targeting a Christian rap audience. And his music would not do well in a Christian rap audience. So in the same way, you know, having Underground not be such a line in the sand makes it so that a rapper can be an Underground rapper, but they're not presenting their music only to an Underground rap audience. And then vice versa. A mainstream rapper can be a mainstream rapper without having to make a clear distinction that this is not underground rap to therefore like oppose the underground rap fans. Yeah, and it's interesting because someone like guess someone like Quade Chris has always said like I want to win Grammys. Like despite what people think Quade Chris should think about the Grammys, he says no, no, no. I want to win Grammys because I'm a musician. I want to be recognized for it. And a lot of people hate that kind of um, that kind of distinction between underground and mainstream because probably because of the way people use it, it they use it so, so narrowly and so with such rigidness when it's truly a flexible thing and a very useful thing but I guess people ruin things <laughs> <laughs> people ruin things we can't have nice things <laughs> you can't have nice things true. yeah I wonder well, I'm, I'm interested uh, I, I'm just interested in what you guys, because um, I think like the next episode after this, if you like dive into it further, maybe is something about um, what it means to transition from being what would be considered underground to mainstream or crossing over. And I think that's like the next step of the conversation. Do you guys think that's even a definable thing? Say that again. Well, so there, there would be like... And with the kind of the metaphor of it being symbiotic on some level that, you know, what he also kind of talks about is like the underground then becomes the mainstream a little bit. And there's this kind of rotating thing. So do you think it's like definable when you can say like someone who started out as an underground rapper becomes mainstream? Like, is there like a clear transition or is that even a definable thing? Okay, well, let's use the examples that he gives in the video um, with ASAP Rocky and Tyler, the creator. We both, I think we all kind of had a similar reaction where when he uses those as his examples of underground rappers, we're like, you consider that underground? Like, ASAP Rocky has had chart-topping hits. Like, Igor was one of the best albums released last year and sold like crazy. So do you consider them mainstream just based on their numbers that they're doing? I think is kind of where that question gets addressed is if it's in the numbers or not or right, then so here's what's interesting let's use them as an example right so i i would say that it has to do more with sound and that on some level i don't think tyler the creator has ever um and that's kind of kind of what Merz's point is for the entirety of it that it has more to do with sound than numbers so i think what I would say is that with Tyler, the creator, I don't think he's ever dived into what we would kind of generally consider a mainstream sound. But I do think that ASAP Rocky has, because I think what he started as underground become, became way more of a mainstream thing. I feel like yeah. that's out of his control, though, really, wasn't it? You know... Uh, well, I'm not saying it's a conscious choice. I'm just saying it's what Right, right, right. But I'm saying that it kind of is... 
Because the way that he kind of defines it is knowing that making the type of music you want to make isn't going to get you much applause. And by that definition, I feel like it's in the eye of the artist. Underground is the in, in the eye of the beholder, I guess. <laughs> Well, it's like it's like the example that you get um, with Quelle, where you know you say Quelle wants to win a Grammy, he wants to be recognized for it, but the type of people who listen that, that to sounds a lot like Tyler to listen to his music and you know the underground crowd all of a sudden think do they all of a sudden think that their artist music is invalidated if it gets recognition? Does that suddenly make because that then that suddenly makes it not underground and is that what people care about? That's always an unfortunate thing. And that's what makes me wonder if, you know, we were talking about a little bit about backpack rap and how underground rap isn't backpack rap. But um, we also previously covered on the podcast how backpack rap pretty much died off. But do you Mm. think that maybe some of that mentality of backpack rap fans then become underground rap fans? But then again, and then in that context, like still, that is only about the fans and their perception, which doesn't matter nearly as much as how the artist considers their self and how the artist makes their musical process. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky because labels are so yeah. useful sometimes, but labels are so limiting sometimes. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Oh, man. I it's think the, the thing at the end of the day is that it really is very all subjective because it's like we're going back and forth between general public perception and artist's mm. intention, I think, at this point, and that's... Uh, I tend to say whatever the artist says they are, I'm going to take their word for it. True. Yeah, yeah, who are we to? But there's a there's definitely exceptions to that rule too. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. You guys ready for some NPR? Tiny disc. Alright. Cool. So this is my my piece and the final piece of the podcast today. Um, is entitled How NPR's Tiny Desk Concert Became the Unexpected Launchpad for Musicians of Color. Um, and it is an interview with the show's producer, the NPR Tiny Desk show's producer, Bobby Carter, and the interview is conducted by Nia Gross. I hope I am pronouncing that right. It is G-R-O-C-E, and it could be pronounced something else, though I don't know. Um, so I think, uh, firstly, uh, this is a really cool piece specifically for our podcast for a few reasons, um, because it is a music journalist interviewing another member of music media and kind of someone involved with vine- with video journalism. So I will say with all bad joke intention, it is a double whammy of sauce. Uh, <laughs> And I will also say it is like we got jerk sauce on the chicken and extra oxtail gravy on the rice and peas. And that is mostly because I miss being in Brooklyn and eating West <laughs> Indian food. <laughs> okay, and I will not make any jokes like that from here on out. So uh, it's exciting to talk about Tiny Desk itself for me as as a podcast, especially in this context that Nia chose to put it under the umbrella of which is uh, how it uh, launched black artists. But also I think what the entire piece talks about too is how when black artists become more a part of Tiny Desk, then Tiny Desk really blew up to even higher levels. 
um, she first mentions, which we were talking about before we even started the podcast, um, the monumental, as described, T-Pain episode where he first sang without auto-tune and killed it and how that was really big for the show. Um, it opened up the floodgates for hip-hop and R&B guests, which in turn grew the audience of the show hugely. She then talks about how Tiny Desk actually has become st- statistically a greater boost for artists than late-night TV. That's really an amazing thing for me for a few reasons. It's forward moving with the internet and done in a way that in a way that more than late night TV ever truly has highlights the artistry of musicians. The article also talks about moving into Tiny Desk Home for COVID, which I was wary of until I watched two of them. Um, Leanne Le Havis solo with just guitar is really unbelievable. And then also it's mentioned... Uh, by Bobby Carter in the interview, the Roddy Rich tiny home, tiny desk home. If you haven't watched it, um, is kind. It's like a little bit bigger than what any of the other, um, what a regular in the office tiny desk would be. But it still kind of highlights Roddy Rich's musicianship. Um, and that one specifically made me think of um, a tiny desk that I mentioned before the podcast when we were talking, which is the Gucci Mane episode. Um, I just think that that to me is what I remember being kind of the most monumental Tiny Desk episode for me because it was like really highlighting Gucci Mane and Zaytoven as true musicians and kind of combating what I would assume is kind of the general public's assumption of those kind of artists to be. Um, When you see Gucci kind of rap with live piano and the way that he kind of moves back and forth with his cadence and see Zaytoven actually breaking down the keys, you really see the innate musicianship that is involved with that kind of music. And I think that that's like a huge, you know, tiny desk coming from the perspective of like highlighting what people, what society's view of like real musicians is transitioning into what society may view as not real musicians and highlighting that that is in fact not the case. Um, is kind of what to me makes tiny desk such a powerful entity. Um, yeah. So the, the best quote though, of the, the, for me, the of the entire thing that's kind of all encapsulating is is pre-interview. Um, Bobby Carter talks about labels wanting a piece now that it's got its legs and wanting to make sure they help people discover artists. But he says the mission of Tiny Desk here in a way is uh, in a way important to explore. Um, we are trying to be disruptive. We are trying to bring people to the desk that people wouldn't expect us to do. Um, I think that that. Um, just regardless of who it is performing to keep that idea of the core of how they move is, is so individualized and uh, we'll just keep tiny desk interesting um, for a long time. Uh, yeah. I think just the, it's kind of funny cause we were just talking about um, whether you, sh- what is like in a different way, but whether it's about kind of audience perception or personal intention um, and I think what's what's kind of awesome and why Tiny Desk works is it's all it was based on a personal intention with the show um, that kind of spread into a really unique perception that the audience um, gets to look at the show with. Um, yeah, what did you guys think? I think following the, I think following the evolution of the show through this piece was really cool. Like hearing it firsthand from someone who's been there with the evolution, because um, <clears throat> they talk about like when they first started Tiny Desk of him basically just bringing in, um, you know, a bunch of different bands that he likes, 
uh, but it mostly being kind of shaped by his taste. And then they make that jump with T-Pain, and Tiny Desk seemed to like kind of take on a life of its own It that totally just blew it way past what it started out as. Mm. Yeah. No, entirely. Entirely. Yeah, and I never considered it as a kind of this barrier-free zone for uh, BIPOC artists and even LGBTQ plus artists because the comparison to late night TV um, is incredible because like it gives it it gives you it give, as an artist it gives you so much it's so much more accessible basically late night TV is the kind of has this barrier of who can go on you know but uh, the fact that their time test concert is how holds more gravity than a late night um, talk show is incredibly important for artists who could never imagine getting on TV like that. It's so valuable. Yeah, so valuable. And um, I didn't expect this piece to be an interview piece. I didn't know going in because the way the um, title is, I felt like there was a lot to explore there just without the interview. Like Mm -hmm. the idea of it being that launch pad for musicians of colour it's a very expansive topic and whenever we do interview pieces I'm always talking about the intro before the transcript and this one again is just perfect because it's so efficient in setting up the gravity of what a Tiny Desk concert is with that like Tiny Desk with the um, late night TV comparison and talking about the range of artists who have gone on the show talking about how Issa Rae gone got on the show to do an interview it's it's the so, range yeah yeah the range he did such a good job depicting the range by weaving in like so many different names mm-hmm. um without like you know without drawing a specific inference emphasis on like look we had this person and then also look we had megan the stallion but like just weave them so well together that you can like feel the range in tiny desk just through the explanation of how it grew to become what it is right yeah. and that has to do a lot with like what makes tiny desk so great too is their authenticity um is that it it only comes from a place where they're like this is something that you know we feel really passionate about about the show and kind of falls in line with our intention so that kind of naturally happens they also talked about um a specific choice to not do like a, a a new tiny desk series uh or new artists performing for juneteenth to kind of highlight that and rather than do that to just kind of pull from the catalog of things that they did already to kind of highlight i mean not even to intentionally highlight black artists but just black artists that they've already had in the tank rather than trying to take advantage media wise yeah. of that kind of moment in time um and i think that that really um represents their authenticity yeah, and that purity comes through in the interviews so strong. And I think that's down to uh, the angle Nia takes with the article. I think it's such an... Like, I never thought about that. And the fact that she had that angle in the first place is just so incredible. So that already gives the interview a lot of weight before it even starts, doesn't it? You have um, Car- Bobby's character talking about the evolution of it. And I can't say it was really intentional, like to make this a space for people, of, uh, musicians of color, but the fact that it evolved to this point, and the fact that they realized that it evolved to this point, and it didn't change their philosophy, 
is amazing. Yeah. If he talks right. about like not only that it changed their philosophy, but it also literally elevated the platform to yeah. lengths that they hadn't even thought about. It literally brought, kind of to reference the article before this, it literally brought them from the underground to the mainstream. <laughs> and you and you mentioned like the purity and just like the genuineness that comes through in the interview. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that like the people involved with this show have sort of grown and evolved with it. You know, it, it hasn't just become like it, it has out like it's outgrown the show itself mm-hmm. for sure underground and mainstream yeah and i love how the um the main core um aspects of the show have carried over to the at home tiny desk concerts the idea of intimacy because that's what really draws you to these um these videos is that like you just have this artist standing at a desk playing like i guess low kind of low-key versions of their song just kind of speaking into these microphones to this little audience in the room and that intimacy carries over as you you mentioned the leanne the harvest one mm-hmm. oh, it's mm-hmm. so pure it's just her and a guitar oh, yeah. it just at home chilling just singing into a camera and it's just so peaceful and <laughs> just like it genuinely feels like peeking into her life a little bit and that intimacy like it's so genius the way they yeah. managed to carry that over it's perfect right because it's, it's kind of interesting yeah oh i just think it's kind of interesting just uh that reminds me of two things so firstly there's like a will smith interview with elliot wilson and beat for rap radar podcast where he kind of talked about the transition for actors going because of the internet going from being like an image of something Um, that's like you build up this image of yourself to make the public perceive you a certain way Mm -hmm. to the internet making you be more accepted for your actual authentic self. Um, And that that is like how the internet is, um, is transitioning out of kind of the big corporate machine of, of these like images that are portrayed in like late night TV of like the late night TV guy being this one thing that like intros these big artists rather than that. It's being like, okay, just come sit at this desk and like play a couple of your songs with like a minimal kind of live band setup If you can, um, is it just will show (laughs) it will offer another opportunity kind of like Will Smith is describing for artists to, to really show a more vulnerable and authentic mm-hmm. version of themselves through the internet. Um, and that that is set by the setup of the show and also reminds me of like what Hot Ones does to kind of make, specifically, I don't know if that was the total intention when they started it, but, but to get them to sit down and like eat 10 really spicy chicken wings, it makes you see the humanity and these people who feel totally separate from you because of society's view of celebrity. Yeah, I'm always here for a hot one. Shout out. (laughs) (laughs) But you know who whose legacy this article really cemented? It's Franny Kelly. So Franny Kelly was the person who brought T Pain in in the first place. She was the one who suggested him, and he completely changed the course of the Tiny Desk concert. Now Franny Kelly is also the host of what might be a dead podcast now. I'm not sure. Called Microphone (laughs) Check. Microphone check is legendary. If have you guys ever heard of microphone check? I've never heard of it. Dude, I've never heard of it either. It's so good. It's it's um. Is it through NPR? Yeah, through NPR. 
Franny Kelly and Ali Muhammad from Tribe Called Quest interviewing rappers. Oh, that sounds so good. It's amazing. So a lot of their stuff was like done a few years ago. <laughs> and um, yo, Ali, Mu- Ali Muhammad is on a lot of tiny desks. I didn't realize he worked for NPR. Yeah, his connections. But NPR. I. But yeah, he's on like a lot of them, Spe- like consistently. I think he's probably on more tiny desks than anyone. Yeah, the fact that play, Franny play Kelly play. brought T Pain in and did microphone check, probably the best interview podcast I've ever heard. Has my favorite interview of all time on there. The last lecture, second one. It's legacy, cemented, legend. I like okay. I like the part where they mention too, like how when they want to bring an artist on that they pitch the artist um, yeah. just as like a little like journalism nerd detail. Like imagine like having the ability, like having the capacity to write a pitch for like an artist that I love, you know, because also they focus on discovery. So it's not just on big artists. They, these people are literally like they're allowed to just pitch any artist and just to have the ability to pitch like, yo, look, like. This is how much I love this person. This is why I think they would be perfect for this show. And then to give them that platform to do their thing and see that happen has got to that be awesome. incredible. They mentioned oh, the yeah. uh, like so Anderson awesome. Pack, and one of the reasons I didn't what I didn't understand about why Anderson Pack's Tiny Desk was so incredible is that the Tiny Desk came out at the time that Pack was releasing Malibu. Like I didn't realize it was that old. So he was still, you know, in the beginning, in the smaller stages. And to have the ability to, like, pitch that artist and then give them that platform and see where they take it and what they've done with it is one of just – it has to be one of the most incredible experiences in music journalism, period. Like, that is amazing to have the platform and the ability to do that. Especially especially when it's really like these black artists who have driven the platform to where it is and how it has the ability to do that. Yep, I think it's time to do the list, Nikki. Time to do the list. Okay, so um, I, at the beginning of quarantine, I'll preface with this, uh, just out of sheer like, okay, I have all this time on my hands, I kind of want to do like a project. Uh, started going from the most recent and working my way backwards of all of the tiny desks. And I made it, I don't remember exactly, to somewhere in between 2014 and 2015 and then could not go any longer. Though I watched some episodes that were before that just randomly clicking on YouTube. Um, but it was it was like a pretty amazing experience just to firstly like find uh, either artists that I knew that I didn't know had done tiny desks or to discover new artists um, and sometimes it was kind of wild, even the new artists that I discovered, their Tiny Desk performance was one of my favorites, but their music I didn't even necessarily like as much when I went to listen <laughs> to their stuff, um, which was kind of a funny conundrum, but still really cool to listen to it in that context. Um, so I I went back over my, my list since I knew I was going to be doing this, and I know Brandon and Ryan have done their lists too. Um, and with respect to time, I will be just running through it. But I felt like I personally had to mention my top 15. Uh, so the <laughs> first five will be, I, well, listen, I listened to like maybe 200 tiny desks. So bear with me. <laughs> but I will go really fast. And the first five will be honorable mentions. And then the, it'll be the top 10. So from 15 to 1. At 15, what I mentioned before, Gucci Mane, then Ravina, The Civil Wars, Zaytoven. Anderson Pack, Drum, 
Then top 10, Taku and Wafia. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Samfa, Corinne Bailey Ray, Nao, Jordan Rakay, Ari Lennox, Brittany Howard, Christian Scott, and Erica Badu as number one. Ari Lennox, Ari Lennox is really good. She's not on my list, but um, she was. She was like my number six. She got kicked off. Dude, Damn. I have three. Like... <laughs> you have three? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, again, I did for like a full full week, maybe week and a half. I literally went all the way back to 2015. The actual list I have for the record is much longer than 15. It's like 55. So, dude, that's his own podcast episode with explanations. <laughs> just going through, right? Jeez. <clears throat> all right. So, uh, mine three is just one tire the creator. Production value was amazing. It felt so intimate. The lights were cool. Number two. Um, Anderson Pack because it's Anderson Pack, and whenever Anderson Pack is in front of a camera, it's magic. And number three, Ravina because South Asian artists represent. I got Ravina. So you had you had Tyler, you had Tyler at your number one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, have you seen? Because okay, I'll just I'll go ahead and jump in. Have you seen Summer Walker's Tiny Desk? Yes, that's on a little bit farther down on my list. Production, the production value kind of reminds me of Tyler with the lights and stuff. So when I was like when I was thinking of tiny desks and especially like thinking of T Pain as sort of setting the criteria for what makes tiny desk amazing and what makes it what it is is like seeing an artist in a super intimate environment and in a way that like you haven't seen them before or in a way that you like don't get from their other music uh, and Mickey you said like there was artists on your list who you love their tiny desk, but weren't really that into their music. And to me, like that mm-hmm. totally, like that makes so much sense with what tiny desk is because, yeah. you know, tiny desk is forcing them to try to present their self in kind of a new way. Um, so that's sort of the criteria that I approached my list. So at number five, I have summer Walker um, because she just is so genuine in that episode. She sings so well, like the production value is incredible. Uh, at number four, I've got Thundercat because just seeing like seeing Thundercat actually like lay out the instrumentation and see what's going on is a, such a major experience aside from just listening to his music uh, and and seeing him sing like seeing that voice like come out of his face is insane to me. Um, number th- number three, I've got Masego um, for sort of the same reason that I have Thundercat. You know, seeing that instrumentation and like hearing him sing and watching that put together is like an experience entirely separate from, uh, plus he's hilarious. Masego's hilarious. And I didn't know that until I watched this tiny desk. Uh, number so two. Is, so is Ari Lennox. Yes. That's another one we were talking about, like comedy and like them being funny and genuine. So funny. Ari, Ari yeah. Lennox is hilarious. And even in Ari Lennox. Um, so talking about how, Tiny Desk grew beyond like what they originally wanted it to be and how the creator of Tiny Desk like wasn't really a fan of hip hop and pushing for those kind of things on there. Like you can kind of see in Ari Lennox, it's hilarious when she's singing New Apartment and she's on the part like, get the fuck out my apartment. Yeah. And she's like trying to get the crowd to <laughs> sing along with her. She's like, what are you like? What are you guys religious? Like, thank you for cussing with me. <laughs> like then number two, I've got Mac Miller's Tiny Desk. And not just because of how sentimental it is and how much I love Mac Miller, but because of how incredible that it is to see, like, the composition on swimming and to see that played out live. Like, oh, plus Thundercats in it and his bass on What's the Use is incredible. Uh, then my number one tiny desk 
is actually Tom Mish because the instrumentation, like, okay, first of all, like his jazz instrumentation, period, is incredible. It's, it's amazing. Like on, on all of his songs, like the stuff he's recorded. But then on the Tiny Desk, they add so much more like live instrumentation and just like riffing it and just going off that like every single song that they play is a new experience compared to what the song is like on their album. Um, and I actually saw too that Tom Mish and Yusuf Days did a at home tiny desk and I haven't watched that one yet. So I'm definitely going to get into that one, but their Tom Mish straight up tiny desk is in just insane to listen to. It's so good. Yeah. All right. I know I said I wouldn't say anything, but you guys got to say some shit about yours. So our our fellow podcasty Charlie, I promised him before, but they got to say some shit, Charlie. So I'm gonna say some shit. So the one thing I just had, just my uh, just about my top two because I think kind of what Brandon's talking about about these really specific things that like make the the tiny desk stand out. I want to talk about. Um, first of all, Erica Badu has a. a f- which is my favorite of all time, just because I could watch that every day and it would make my day better, I think. She has a freestyle of her song, Green Eyes, at the end that is just, like, honestly one of the most moving performances of music of anything I think I have literally ever seen. My top five are all because of visceral reactions to the videos. Um, and then Christian Scott, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his, the, his third and fourth names because I will, I will butcher them. Um, he has specifically, he tells a story of a hate crime that was committed against him in new Orleans before he plays his last song and the dichotomy of listening to that story. And then hearing that song, um, by him and his, his group of musicians is like one of the wildest things I've ever seen musically, but yeah, I really want to see like, I don't know, like something about tiny desk. I get really into like the instrumentation and seeing the instrumentation put together. Uh, cause I think one of the things that like is a testament to how good the audio engineering is with tiny desk. Cause if you think about that too, like they're not in a studio, they are literally just like in an office space with a desk and the acoustics in there, like can't be that great. So seeing them like put together such quality audio from like instruments, you know, spaced out and like crammed into this little desk is an amazing thing. Uh-huh. And it made me like yeah, watching definitely. all these, watching all these tiny desks made me want to see a jazz band. So I got a five piece jazz band put together from Tom Mish on guitar, Thundercat on bass, Chris Keys on piano, yeah. Anderson Pack on drums, and Masego with a saxophone. And that would be the best five-piece jazz band you could ever, like see in a Tiny Desk concert. That would be insane. <laughs> yes. There you go. There you go. You hear that, NPR? <laughs> All right, I think that's a great way to close it, guys. Um, everyone, thank you for listening. Uh, please subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. Um, yeah. Thanks. If, Peace if out. you're if you're a writer, send us your writing. Right, I always forget that. Yes, if you're an independent writer, uh, specifically who you write for uh, one of the smaller publications, we may or may not be aware of. Um, we'd love to highlight your work on the show. Um, yeah, send it in. Thank you. Guys. Thank you. This episode of In Search of Source featured Mickey Hellerback, Brandon Hill, and Ryan Gore of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Charlie Taylor, of the Fifth Home Podcast Network. 
Music for the show is fucked up by Basti. Thanks to Joe Breakers for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth Element Podcast Number Production. Links for Basti, Joe Records, Central Source, the Fifth Element, and content covered in this episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source. <laughs>